So this uh, this time is uh, in the Christian world, of course, is Christmas time, and uh, and then New Year's, and so these events. You know, Christmas now is uh, kind of the international celebration, and uh, so you see Santa Claus and and. Uh, Plastic snow in Bangkok. <laughs> uh, it's a time where, you know, it's the, in the world there, the uh, population pressures, uh, the environmental problems, the, uh, and there's no end to the, you know, the conditions that we live on on this planet are uh, somehow changing in a way that can be rather threatening and frightening to people and of course the tendency of the human mind is to is to uh, dwell on uh, what's wrong and and uh, the <coughs> worry and anxiety about the future and so just to point out like the thinking mind uh, it's important to really get some perspective on thinking because uh, that is a function we have that we're very bound into. We we tend to experience our lives through perceptions, conditioned perceptions, and words and concepts. And so we, you know, but when you really examine thinking as a, you know, the habit of thinking, it's a, it's a critical function. Thinking is, is what they call dualistic, it divides everything up, and so, it, you know, this is good, this is bad, right, wrong, um, good, better, best, bad, worse, worse, and, and then we differentiate, we discriminate, this is red, and blue, and yellow, a man, a woman, and, and then we have various a cultural attitudes about gender, about class, about religion and politics and and that that we have, you know, just part of a cultural uh, conditioning we get from the family we're born into. So then this, uh, and the, the mindfulness is of course the way that we begin to get perspective on thinking because when you think about thinking, you, you know, you're just caught in the whirlpool of thinking. And, uh, and so to get beyond thought is, uh, is through mindfulness. And then to be able to objectify the thinking process. So you, you're looking at it not through views about it, but just observing how it works. Like the proliferating tendency, the way the mind, when you start thinking, or something stimulates a, a feeling, and then you think, and it goes off into a conceptual proliferation, or papancha, or pungdang in Thai. So this is, is like, uh, just notice how, how grammar works, English grammar, you know, so you, one word connects to another, and these are patterns that we learn you know, from uh, when we're, we're learning the language. And so then we have various 
cultural assumption that, that we all have from being, you know, attitudes about life and what's important, what isn't, what's right and wrong, according to particular cultural conditioning that, that we have. So these are infinitely variable, and then we, we think about them as right or wrong, good or bad. But to get outside of that dualistic trap is, in the only way we can really do it is with mindfulness. <coughs> so then, uh, mindfulness, sati, sampachanya, satipanya, these words are very significant. These are the kind of essence of Buddha's teachings. You know, this is what's so unique about it, is that the emphasis, the importance that Buddha gave on sati, sampachanya, and panya, wisdom. Uh, so that because, you know, in, in, in other religious conventions, the, the doctrinal positions usually start from, you know, I believe in God or, you know, a statement, a kind of metaphysical belief or, uh, about an ultimate reality. And, and then the Buddha never did that. He started from, uh, the, an existential reality such as suffering, dukkha, uh, and, and just notice the difference, you know, like you're talking about universal love as a, a, that's an inspiring concept, isn't it? Like we must love each other and unconditional love, universal love is an all-embracing uh, ideal and suffering is, is uh, even though we all experience it, there's nothing inspiring about it. And so, we tend, you know, our, much of our life is trying to get away from it or, or you know, feel sorry for ourselves or blame others for it. And so then this, this emphasis uh, as a noble truth, as I've mentioned before, in contrast to, say, uh, theistic religions which start from a belief in, in the ultimate. And, uh, and just notice right now, as you're sitting here, you know, whether there's with the ultimate reality, you can't conceive that really. Try to conceive the ultimate reality, but you can observe suffering. So it's it's something, you know, that's recognizable. It's it's nothing esoteric or subtle. It's very obvious in itself. So the Buddha's emphasis on Dukkha, you know, where you, you use that as, as it's kind of the, the clue or the key to the door because it's, it's nothing mysterious about it. But it's, it's changing from just reactivity against it to understanding it and then it leads on to ultimate truth. Amata Dhamma, Paramata Satcha, these words. So when you, like, uh, trying to conceive ultimate reality, then you get into difficult words like God, uh, because to me, you know, culturally, I was brought up as a Christian, so, so that word itself conveys uh, an old man with a white beard up in the sky. You know, even though I know on, on one level that's very childish and uh, but it's 
that God tends to have have qualities, you know, like God the Father, God the Son, and so forth. These are qualities or uh, conditions, attributes that that get applied to ultimate reality. And the Buddha never did that. Ultimate reality can be recognized, but it has no attributes. It's not right or wrong, good or bad, red or blue, male or female. And so, you know, your thinking process can't conceive that. It just goes blank, and it's trying to conceive the inconceivable is, you know, an impossibility. So that's where mindfulness allows us to observe that, to discern, uh, you know, the difference. So then this word panya in Pali, can be, it, the translation is discerning, which is not discriminating. When we use the word discrimination, then, it, then it's the thinking mind about this being bigger, smaller, right or wrong. And this is better than that. So, you know, this is this isn't as good as that. <laughs> That's discrimination. Discernment, what is discernible in, in terms of panya is is uh, attachment and non-attachment, say. When you're mindful, then you, you discern attachment is like this, you know, so you, you, you're not saying anything about attachment is wrong, because as soon as you give it something like a, 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 an adjectival condition, then it, then it becomes more than that. So the important with mindfulness allows you to observe the results of attachment to suffering and then and to the causes of suffering and then then the attitude is letting go of the causes and then you 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 know as you as you trust your intuitive sense more sati and panya together then you you can recognize non-attachment is like this, or self. What what is self? You know the ego, the the self view, the sakaya ditti, or personality view is is all built on words and concepts and attitudes and assumptions. So you know then then uh, when there's you know the self falls away when there's no word. Uh, and there's just awareness and so you can discern anatta or non-self discern it from self which is you know I, Madra, Samedo and so forth and it becomes you know on a conventional level there's nothing wrong with that but uh, ignorance and attachment to even the my name is, uh, is is suffering because I'm I limit whatever condition I attach to. I'm bound into that condition, which is always a limitation and and will always be a cause of suffering. So then, the awakened consciousness of an individual and the discerning ability is then developed through, say, what we call meditation or bhavana in Pali. Bhavana is actually the fourth noble truth where you're developing, cultivating the Eightfold Path from Samaditi.
And so that is like mean translated as cultivating or developing this awareness, this uh, sati and panya in uh, as you live your life as a you know with the sitting, standing, walking, lying down postures, with the breathing, inhaling, exhaling, or, or you know eating your food, putting on your robe, taking off your robe, uh, you know whatever you know just the daily routine that we use here, you know, whatever it amounts to, whether it's work or or being alone or in a group you know, or whatever, the, the awareness that the and panya then can, we can discern that we're suffering, what are we attached to? So over the years, you know, in um, just integrating this pawana into into life, the flow of my life. Now we use this, these noble truths as a constant reminder. So if I'm upset or anxious or worried or offended by something or somebody, you know, then I'm suffering. And then when I recognize there's suffering, then, you know, I know better than to blame somebody else even if they have been rude and nasty to me, I know that that's not the first noble truth, that's what they do to me, but how I, the suffering I create around what somebody says to me. And so, by tracing it to that, then I can, you know, I get to the cause and the, and the, and the, and the, 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 the development of non-attachment to that cause, letting go of the cause and non-attachment. So just to, to, you know, because panya sometimes is used in wisdom can be seen as a kind of discrimination, kind of high level of discrimination. But in, uh, but this word discernment in English is where you can actually know that the condition Phenomena and the unconditioned. There's a discerning, a recognizing of it, of it. and so the recognition then, uh, it lead, you know, is where panya then can operate. And, and of course, we recognize the the non-suffering through non-attachment, non-self, shunyata, emptiness, nibbana. Uh, Niroda, all these words, uh, unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. They're, they're separate words, but they're slightly different emphasis, but they all come out to the same thing. So, uh, uh, just to offer this as a, as a reflection, because it, it's a, you know, this, uh, this teaching is very, it's very precise. It's not. It's not a fuzzy, kind of vague path. The Buddhist path. It's not like a kind of. I think. I'm not sure. Maybe kind of thing. Or uh, it's. It's very clear. But in order to to see it clearly, the the first three fetters are the are is the are the obstruction. So, like for Sotapanna, there's a Sakyaditi, Thilabhata Paramahasa, Vichikija are, are the uh, obstructions to seeing that path. 
And so, you know, I encourage you to really investigate these patterns, you know, in, in your own mind, you know, so that it's a, because it, it does deal with like sakiditi, which is probably like the ego or the self-view. And, and in Silabhata Maramasa, I use that concept for like just conditioning, like cultural conditioning. Things that aren't particularly ego, but assumptions we make through through the conditioning process we've acquired. Culture, social identities, and and that, that are part of uh, uh, assumptions, cultural assumptions we have uh, that aren't particularly a self, you know, me and mine, but they're an attitude that that is based on, that it comes from ignorance and, and cultural conditioning. And then, uh, and then with Chikecha, doubt is always the result of attachment to thinking. So one thing, like Zen Buddhism, uh, they kind of perfected that uh, koan style, which is yeah, a way of making, deliberate way to make you doubt. <laughs> and so, you know, because we are so bound into wanting to know answers, solve problems, and, uh, you know, to have security of some sort, like, this is the right way, and that's wrong, and you're doing it right, you're doing it wrong and and uh, then there's so many different views about meditation practice in Theravada so, <clears throat> you know, you hear different teachers and you've got to do this first and then uh, and then my method is the right one and, and all the others are rubbish or, you know, so there's you know, you hear it in Thailand and then in the West, you know, strong views about how to practice and and uh, what the right way to do it, and so and these oftentimes these views come from teachers or people like scholars and, that seem to have a sense of authority and know what they're talking about. So that you know the one you know I've been through this myself, so I know the effect it has on me. You know, like. A, when, when an authority says you're wrong and you should do this, not that, you know, then of course if I start operating from just reacting to it, then I, I'm back in sakyaditi again, in doubt, or resentment, or, or being offended, or being critical of, of the person, or just observing, you know, the, maybe these these reactions, emotional reactions I have about somebody telling me I'm all wrong is like this. And this you can know directly, you know, it's not it's not it's not trying to justify your position or or put anyone down, you know, or say that, that they're wrong but or to argue the point, but to use the situation for for knowing what you can know in the present. And, and so, if somebody says something offensive to you, some rude statement that, you know, is wrong even, <laughs> you get more benefit if you just look at your own, you know, at the reaction, the emotional reaction you have from that, you know. And you begin, because then you'll actually 
being mindful and discerning it in a way that is not being lost in in just uh, habitual reacting to the feeling of being offended or outraged by insulting remark. Uh, this is in uh, you know in daily life like we we have in monastic uh, vinaya we're supposed to use right speech or proper speech things like that so it, you know it's not we try our best to be responsible but still speech is one of the more difficult ones to control but in the worldly life they don't have such um, demands on you you know so you can just say anything you want and <laughs> and the things you hear you know in the world are pretty awful you know the insults and the blame so you know if you've ever listened to you know like in in England the House of Commons they they record their sessions on Radio 4 BBC and you know for such a polite society when these (laughs) members of parliament get together in the House of Commons you wouldn't believe how (laughs) arrogant and voracious and insulting and blaming (laughs) so to be a politician in in England you have to really have a tough heart you know you can't be a wimp you're overwhelmed because somebody said you're you're a stupid idiot. You just <laughs> <laughs> but we can we can become so precious that we you know we get sometimes we we're over you know like I see tendency in in uh, monasteries in in the in England to be overly politically correct where you know you're you're trying to make everything not offensive to anyone and that's the way that society kind of would like it to just be terribly nice about everything <laughs> and that also <laughs> has, its, has its problems because messages don't get across or or people misunderstand or uh, you kind of never say anything that might upset somebody so what what's really important doesn't become very conscious for them so this uh, is just learning from experience but you're the kind of you're the path itself each one of you you know you it's here is a path you know it's not out there or in me or somebody else it's and this is what you learn from the way you are, you know. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether, you know, you're a really refined, good person or a coarse one, but whatever way you see yourself is what you learn from. Because the discerning ability is, is non-critical. It's not about me as being right or wrong, but it's discerning the tendency to... to to uh, give myself, be critical of myself or of others, is like this. When I feel uh, very uh, critical of somebody else, then I can be aware. It's like I feel like this, you know. I begin to observe this, 
this kind of feeling of bringing up this person's name and then these kind of proliferations that I listen to it. So I began to get a feeling for what it's like to to dwell on my distaste for somebody is like this. And then you, you're observing it, you're discerning that it is, it is what it is. And then you recognize, if I start grasping this and going along with it, then I get pulled into a whole kind of habit tendency of anger and blame and, and uh, rage even. But if I observe it, then it's, it's cultivating, it's bhavana, it's not just me trying to you know, grin and bear it. It's actually using it, the first noble truth, second noble truth. Then, uh, this uh, discerning ability is, you know, I find, uh, because we, we do, you know, the, the, the plan, the sensual world is all dualistic. It's about birth and death. Uh, you know, so everything we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, and feel is, is as always, it's, it's conditions, it's, uh, it's, it's attributes, it's particular qualities, and, and, and of course, the Buddha summed it all up with the Anicca Dukkha not all conditions are permanent, uh, so that because of the uh, uncountable infinite variety and of conditioned phenomena that we have to experience all the time. You know, how do you sort it out? How can you get any perspective on it? Because one condition, you know, if you attach to this condition, you, a condition can't see another one. You're just bound into uh, the limitation of the condition you're attached to. So then this non-attachment is, uh, it's, it's non-attachment is like this, and then you then you have perspective on your on the conditions conditions that you're experiencing, whether it's personal or external, whether it's through seeing what you see or hear, smell, taste, touch, think or feel, whether it's uh, personal or impersonal, good or bad, right or wrong, it's seen, it's discerned as sankhara, uh, you know, as conditioned phenomena as phenomena, as uh, all phenomena is changing. And that which is aware of phenomena is not that. That is uh, that is the path and the non-unconditioned, unborn, uncreated, through this awareness, sati, sampatanya. Sampatanya is like, it's intuitive, it's a, it, it embraces the moment, everything. It's not a, it's not a, critical thing where you're just focusing on one thing and, and dismissing the rest. But it it allows us to like we, we in English we use the word usually like mindful when you drive the car or when you're crossing the street you know look both ways and mindful when you you know in this path because there's some stumps and so we, we think of mindfulness always as being aware of a particular object or a situation, difficult uh, situation. But in Sati Sampatanya, that they combine in this, this present moment, which uh, is our ability to embrace the totality of this moment with all, with all the conditions still operating in it. But our relationship to the 
this moment is no longer going from one thing to another, you know, in terms of our like or preference or attraction or aversion, but to to be the knower of it. It's like this. Yeah, so this is why, like, Sampatanya allows this uh, this broad spectrum of total and uh, with with this with all that is present, including the body, the breath, the posture, and all the the conditions that are affecting you that that are that are discernible in this present moment, and then. Uh, and so this is a, a way of training oneself for this intuitive, for this awareness level that is liberating from birth and death. So you have, a, have the, this uh, get beyond just the limitation of, of conditions of birth and death. Now you can't conceive that, you know, it's, it's a, it's an intuit. It's an insight. It's not. It, you can't describe that, but you can recognize it through this sati sampachanya and discern. You know, by by investigating condition phenomena first, no longer from cultural biases or personal preferences, but just observing it as it really happens in the present. You know, what arises ceases. And then that, as you you begin to pay more attention just to phenomena as it as you're experiencing it, it's no longer theoretical or philosophical or psychological. It's just like this. Then you 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 and using the four noble truths as a kind of way of reminding yourself what to do with it or not to do. Then you you become, you have the insight into the path itself. And until you have, until you, you see through the, you, you know, you, the three fetters, first three fetters, and then there's never, there's always doubt it's going to follow you around, you know, wherever you go, whether you go off to a beautiful peaceful mountaintop with devas bringing you pindabot food every day or live in a slum in Bangkok or whatever or anything in between and then you know if these fetters are still they, they uh, have never been recognized then we, we're still subject to doubt you know we're still thrown about and you can see how in the in the story of the Buddha, you know, in the, in the scripture, the prince, the, uh, the ascetic Gotama, you know, leave, Prince Siddhartha leaves the palace, becomes the ascetic Gotama, practices asceticism, develops you know, powers, and all these you know special qualities, special concentration abilities, and and yet at the end of the day, after six years of that, recognizing that there's still, you know, this isn't it, you know, this is, this is not, and it, it's still too, it's still conditioned phenomena that, that is refined, but it, it's not the escape from suffering, 
And so then the then the insight that the Buddha had to become the Buddha was recognition of that of the not of concentrating the mind and refining conscious conditions in consciousness, but in in opening everything up to reality in the present. And then his uh, his uh, first sermon, of course, is the Four Noble Truths. So that that is um, you know quite significant. That, I mean, it was it's a brilliant way of of uh, dealing with the human condition that we all share. And it's not about being um, uh, an aesthetic for six years or being you know proficient in all the the concentration practices or having been a prince uh, royal family or anything like that it's about the common common reality that we share with all all creatures in fact you know with the animal kingdom and what uh, but with the human the human uh, have this reflective Buddha mind you might call it a Buddha mind we can actually reflect on ourselves. We're not just conditioned by the forms we're in. You know, we're not just helplessly caught in instinctual patterns of behavior according to our species. We can actually contemplate the species, and, and you know, through sati sampachanya, sati panya. The human side, being human, is like this. No, I don't think animals can do that, you know. Like the cats at Amaravati, and get them to contemplate what is it like to be a cat? <laughs> what do you feel like when you kill a bird? <laughs> they never quite register. <laughs> but, you know, if we kill a bird, what do you feel like? They can say that, and then you would, you know, you, you could observe maybe guilt or remorse or whatever and through some kind of cruel action you you commit and, and so this is like the reflective mind the Buddha Buddha nature they, they use these words but it's the ability that like to be able to observe be the Bhutto the knower of the world rather than just a creature caught in the Comic condition of form that is is conscious and just operating through the momentum of karma and and uh, conditioning. So I'll stop here. <laughs> <laughs>